0: I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Wednesday, August 2nd. Well, let's keep trying to understand the January 6th and big lie indictment of Donald Trump. We'll assume you know some of the basics by now. A 45-page indictment, four counts, six unindicted co-conspirators, widely believed to include Rudy Giuliani and others, The basic charges include three conspiracies to defraud the United States, to corruptly obstruct the January 6th proceedings in Congress, and perhaps most interestingly and most importantly, a conspiracy against the right to vote and to have one's vote counted. With us now, NYU law professor Andrew Weissman, former general counsel to the FBI, a lead investigator in the Donald Trump Russia investigation under Robert Mueller, and author of the book on that experience, Where Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation, and he's an MSNBC legal analyst. Andrew, I know you've been on the air so much over the last day, so we really appreciate you making some time for us again. Welcome back to WNYC.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, Brian.
0: To start on the big picture, was this more or less the indictment of Trump you were expecting, or did Special Counsel Jack Smith surprise you in any big ways?
1: Uh, so just to sound like a lawyer, the answer to that is yes, uh, <laughs> in that it it is the indictment that I think we all were expecting. It does follow very much the framework of the January 6th committee, and was a huge debt to them in terms of uh, uncovering the facts. Obviously, there are some additional facts because they were able to get the testimony of the vice president, former vice president, um, and that's clearly reflected in the allegations. Um, I think the thing that uh, surprised me a little bit was um, the very, very skillful uh, use of certain crimes and the way it's framed to avoid certain legal issues uh, that I think may not be totally apparent to people, but uh, they, for instance, they, they avoided by not charging insurrection. They avoided claims of selective prosecution, both legal ones and rhetorical ones, by not going back to a charge that hasn't been brought in over a hundred years uh they didn't focus as much on the former president's statements on the ellipse, so that they avoided First Amendment challenges because this is not um focusing on just a speech and inciting uh a mob based on that speech. So they avoided that speech those on the ellipse
0: on January sixth, where he was kind exactly. of dispatching his supporters to go to the Capitol.
1: Right. And then the other is uh it's it's unusual to be so clear about the criminality of six co-conspirators. It's fairly easy to identify at least five of those people from the very detailed allegations. And if I were those people and their defense lawyers, it would be abundantly clear that they are going to be charged if they haven't already been charged uh, under seal uh, in connection with the allegations here. But I don't think they're going to be uh, charged in the same indictment as Donald Trump. This clearly to me indicated that Jack Smith wants to have the trial just the first trial just with respect to Donald Trump, and that mm-hmm. he's going to try and make sure this case goes to trial before the general election.
0: Let me pick out one of those things you just referred to and ask you to drill down on it a little bit. January 6th itself. One thing I was waiting to see was if they charged him with a criminal act of omission. And I didn't know what the charge would be. I'm not a lawyer. But, you know, watching the Capitol break in on TV and doing nothing to stop the violence when people were repeatedly calling him that afternoon and asking him to please say something because he had the power with those people to call it off, and they didn't explicitly charge him with that, but as I'm reading it, they did charge him with exploiting the riot. The indictment uses the word exploiting. Can you explain that charge?
1: Sure. So they are using the uh, his lack of uh, his sitting on his hands as evidence. It it clearly um, is relevant to his intent at the time, but they very much focus on things he was actually doing, um, and it was it to me it was quite powerful because all of us lived through watching the events before our eyes on January sixth, and the idea that there wasn't horror on the part of of any citizen, let alone the president of the United States, to see the Capitol being attacked, the vice president put in danger, the senators, congressmen, congresswomen, staff, law enforcement, and that the reaction was not just omission, but actually continuing to try to overthrow the will of the people. And that there were continued acts uh, going on while that was occurring, um, to me was was um, chilling uh, in terms of them doing it. And then the, the question that you have about violence, I thought that that was a very skillful use in the indictment where they say he took advantage of the violence that was happening hmm. to try to continue his effort to overthrow the will of the people. But they don't get into an issue of whether he incited it uh, and and that piece of the case. And so, they're, again, they're avoiding uh, First Amendment issues, but they're clearly putting the violence into the charged uh, conduct here. So it'll be front and center before the jury.
0: Can you explain how that might get front and center before the jury if they're charging him with taking advantage of the violence? Taking advantage how?
1: So, um, one of the things that is alleged is, um, if you look at the end of the allegations, is he is talking to, and he has uh, various co-conspirators continuing to talk to people in the Congress about needing to delay. Uh, or prevent the vote, the the votes being counted, the electoral votes being counted, and saying that uh, given the attack and the violence, that it makes sense to put this off. And basically, doing whatever he could at this point, since it's his last ditch effort to a- avoid the joint session of Congress reconvening uh, in, uh, in in and deciding that he is. Uh, not going to be the future president of the United States.
0: Interesting. So if we remember the events of January 6th, they did actually suspend the certification of the electoral votes process while people were in danger and were taking cover, et cetera. And they came back, I think, about six hours later. Uh, So the indictment says Trump was actually using that suspension to ask senators to continue that suspension uh, to reconsider certifying the election uh, at all. Why is that a crime? Why isn't that hardball politics? And Andrew, I could ask that about any number of the points in this indictment, where the line is between playing hardball politics and committing a criminal act.
1: Sure. So I I guess it it depends what you mean by hardball politics. If hardball politics means um, lying to uh, elect, let's say, state electors to get them to change vote tallies, Uh, if it means uh, getting the Department of Justice to issue a statement that uh, these states should uh, relent in terms of counting or certifying votes or reconsider that because there was fraud in the election. When, there, when the DOJ, in fact, didn't find that there was fraud in the election, if it's lying to the vice, your own vice president of the United States about uh, what has occurred, what his powers are, um, lying to the American people about the vice president's position about whether he has the power to act, which the vice president had repeatedly told the president he doesn't have that power, but the uh, president on January 5th, Issued a press statement saying that the vice president agreed that he does have that power. One mm. of the things that I actually find quite salient mm. because it was on January fifth, and the vice president is clear that he has consistently said he did not have that power, and he acted accordingly to his credit at the time. But let me jump.
0: Let me jump in on that one. When is lying to the public a politician lying to the
1: public a crime? So just to be clear, the indictment goes out of its way to say, if that's all you're doing, if all you're doing is uh, lying to the American public and saying, I won the election, that's fine. That's not a crime because you haven't taken an action uh, in furtherance of that. Uh, If you want to file a lawsuit challenging uh, any particular uh, state, Election counting, assuming that the the lawsuit is not frivolous, uh, mm-hmm. that's that's the appropriate means. Uh, that is, the, and the indictment goes out of its way in the introduction to say those are the lawful means, and then you abide by that legal process. That's what that's what it means to be the rule of law. If you you have an opportunity to present your evidence in court, they lost all of those cases, um, and that's the legal means. You don't get to take the law into your own hands. Uh, and so the issue is really not about hardball politics versus a crime. The issue is that, yes, there is free speech, but if you start acting on what you know is false to undermine the will of the people, that is a crime. And it is the, in this case, the the allegations are proved. Um, this is the most serious crime that is that is i can ever think having been charged because it goes to the fundamental uh rule of law in this country and what it means to be a democracy
0: can you clear something up for us i'm hearing a four count indictment but i read from the indictment in the intro the three conspiracies that he's being charged with so is it three charges or is it four charges?
1: So it's four charges. There are three uh, conspiracy charges, and there's one uh, obstruction and attempt to obstruct charge. Um, so the the what I'll call the 1512 obstruction, that's referenced to the statute 1512 of the uh, code, that is charged both as a conspiracy and as an attempt, so that's why there are four charges.
0: Let's take a phone call. Here's Nelson in Brooklyn. Nelson, you're on WNYC with Andrew Weissman. Hello. Thank you. Um, my concern here is is that he loses all these these cases. You know, all the cases that are out now, and he just keeps appealing these things. At some point, he'll be 85 or 86 years old, because my feeling is that it's going to take five or six years after all the appeals. What judge in this country is going to put an 86-year-old ex-president
1: in prison? Well, Nelson, that's a really good question. Uh, There are a lot of ifs there, but but assuming that uh, this case goes to trial, uh, assuming that Uh, Donald Trump does not become the president and end the federal cases, assuming a a Republican president, uh, other than Donald Trump doesn't become president and end the cases. So assuming this case goes to trial, assuming there's a conviction at that point, um, uh, there are three, there may be four criminal cases. Uh, A judge uh, does have the ability to send the person to jail Uh, Even while an appeal is pending, that happens uh, quite often that the person doesn't remain uh, out uh, and about uh, while an appeal is pending, particularly if there are no significant legal issues with the trial. So that's one possibility. The other is that uh, having prosecuted a number of mob cases where some of the defendants were quite elderly, uh, those people still went to jail. Now their crimes were very different, but um, I don't think that um, the age of the defendant, uh, under the at least federally under the United States sentencing guidelines, is supposed to be a factor uh, that is considered, unless it is um, the person is a minor, uh, in which case it really does go to their level of culpability. Um, And so um, I I actually took from this indictment and knowing the judge who was assigned, Judge Chutkin, who has handled so many January 6th cases, as have so many of the judges in the District of Columbia, that I think the prospect of Donald Trump, uh, if he is convicted, uh, going to jail, I think rose dramatically. Uh, because of the rule of law and the fact that a leader of a conspiracy should not be treated any um, less harshly than the foot soldiers who have been sentenced to significant jail time.
0: Ah, and I think we have a call right on that point. That's wondering why he wasn't charged with some particular things. Rob in the Bronx, you're on WNYC with NYU law professor and former Mueller investigation uh, lead investigator Andrew Weissman. Hi, Rob. Yeah, hi. Um, Yeah, I I don't agree that uh, Trump shouldn't be charged with sedition. I mean, people who took part in the riot and attacked the Capitol have already been um, charged and convicted of sedition. In their part in the attack on the Capitol, and Trump egged on the mob. He's the one who organized the mob. He's the one who uh, sent out invitations, as it were, to gather this mob and sent them there to attack the Capitol and refused to call them off. We we know this from the January 6th hearings in Congress. So I, I don't understand why he hasn't been charged with sedition when so many of the rank and file individuals, dozens and dozens of cases, um, people have been charged with, and as the caller says, convicted of seditious conspiracy and other things having to do with the actual break-in? It's a good question, Andrew.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Just so the the record's clear, many, many people have been charged with obstruction of congress that's the 1512 charge and the former president is now charged with that as well so that Mm -hmm. fits very much with what has been charged routinely against many people it is a far fewer number of people who've been charged with seditious conspiracy so that that is not a routine charge Um, the difference between obstruction and seditious conspiracy is that seditious conspiracy requires the government to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they intended the obstruction to be accomplished by the use of force. And the government, I think obviously decided that based on the evidence that they have, that they had concerns about being able to prove that element beyond a reasonable doubt. Remember the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury. Uh, And I, and the cases that have charged seditious conspiracy um for instance with respect to the uh, proud boys and the oath keepers there was very explicit evidence and text messages about uh the use of force about accomplishing the obstruction through that particular means Um, and so i really do understand the caller's concern um, but i do think that um I think colloquially, we all can say that we are aware that the president um, understood or even intended that there would be that use of force. But I think this this likely came down to an issue of whether knowing what proof they had, whether they would be able to prove that element to that very high standard uh, that's required under the criminal law.
0: Before you go and we bring in our next guest, Michael Waldman from the Brennan Center for Justice and continue on this, you wrote the book, Where Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation. You were a lead investigator with Mueller. You were disappointed, I think it's fair to say, with how that investigation of Trump did end. Do you think Jack Smith learned any specific lessons from the Mueller investigation that you see applied in this indictment?
1: Um, you know that's that's hard to say. i I do think that the biggest thing that um, that he's he has going for him is that he's able to charge uh, the former president because he's a former president. That was nothing that we could actually do under Department of Justice rules. I think he, Uh, Other things that he has done uh, is he's kept a very low profile. He is um, speaking through uh, his actions in court. Uh, He's taking, I think, additional steps that we did not take to protect uh, his people who are subject to he and and many other uh, state uh, law enforcement and judicial officers are subjected to incredible threats uh of violence um so i think those are all steps that he has taken um but i think the main thing he's doing is very similar which is keeping his head down and i think he is um like uh robert muller is acting very very quickly um and is aware of the clock because of the position he was put in i mean he has not been the special counsel for terribly long and he has really done a remarkable job in my estimation in terms of speed in getting these two indictments um, out and as they're so um, so detailed. Now obviously he had he had um, a significant amount of work done by the January 6th committee uh, by people at the department before he was appointed, but it clearly shows an enormous amount of work in a short amount of time.
0: NYU Law Professor Andrew Weissman, former general counsel to the FBI, a lead investigator in the Donald Trump-Russia investigation under Robert Mueller, and author of the book on that experience, Where Law Ends Inside the Mueller Investigation. And he's an MSNBC legal analyst. Andrew, thank you so much. You're welcome.